Oh Lord, may the newly uh, miked words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This past week, I was getting coffee on campus with Brandon McDaniel, our resident philosophy professor, and uh, over the course of our conversation, he asked me, you know, what what was going on. I told him that I would be preaching this Sunday. Uh, So naturally, um, innocently even, he asked what I would be preaching on. And I told him that our reading from 1 Corinthians uh, was on the wisdom of the world and the folly of the cross, so I figured I'd preach on the difference between the wisdom of the world and this wisdom of God. Well, you may have noticed that Brandon is not here this morning. (laughs) I guess that someone so schooled in the wisdom of the world thought it might be folly to listen to an amateur theologian address the wisdom of any kind. At least I have learned it would be wiser to keep my mouth shut and wait until the congregation is seating. You lot are stuck. No, uh, Brandon actually is off. uh, He is leading the ethics bowl for the University of Richmond athletes, as, uh, as we like to call them. Um, so that's why he's not here. I told him you would, uh, you would pray for him. All right. So while I do intend to address wisdom using Paul as a reminder to the church of Corinth as a springboard of sorts, what we have in the gospel reading, the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, um, is where I want to land. I think that that is the clearest picture of the wisdom of the kingdom. But, a preamble. In an attempt to distinguish a type of Christian wisdom over against the wisdom of the world, we must first ask the question, what is wisdom? Wisdom is a rather slippery notion to hold on to. In many ways, I think it's much easier to say what wisdom is not. Wisdom is not intelligence. I think we've all met people who, though they are incredibly intelligent, capable of great feats of learning, they may lack what we would call wisdom. Their life seems to fall apart. They don't know how to relate to others struggle in their marriages. Neither are we likely to view wisdom as that ability to relate to others purely. Indeed, more often than not, the fool is the one who best relates to others because foolishness is more common than wisdom. We are not often tempted No, I'm sorry. We are often tempted, I think, to associate moral discipline with wisdom. But this is not wisdom in itself. Wisdom certainly incorporates all of these elements, intelligence, relatability, morality, structure. 
but it is itself larger than any of them. One thing that we must say positively about wisdom is that it is a sort of hidden thing. This is perfectly obvious even from the most simple moral fables that we teach to our children or that we hear in school. Think about the story of the tortoise and the hare. We have here perhaps the least exciting premise for any story ever told. There is to be a race between the sluggish, shelled sage and the hasty hair of hubris. Well, we all know how the story goes. The hare, knowing himself much faster than the tortoise, speeds on ahead. But in order to seize a more dramatic victory, decides to wait before the finish line. But in his comfort and confidence, he dozes off. And what happens but that the tortoise crosses the finish line before the hopster wakes. What then do we hope to teach from this story? That though it may appear that it is better to have the external gifts, the speed of the hare, it is actually better to have Tortugan constancy. I did make up that word, yes. <laughs> the idea is that wisdom is the discipline of looking through how things appear to see beyond, to understand some deeper, more holistic understanding of how life works at the big picture level. Wisdom, both heavenly and heathenly, assumes that there is a world as it appears and a world that is. What then might we say about worldly wisdom? I suppose the first thing that we ought to say is that the wisdom of the world is legion. It would be probably safe to say that every single person, Christian and other wise, has his or her own angle. Yet, fascinating a rabbit trail as that may be, perhaps it is best to stick to the general themes of worldly wisdom as we encounter it today. Even here, I claim no special insight. I am merely a priest and campus minister. So, you may have to badger Brandon after all whenever he returns, if you want the deep cuts of wisdom. One of the themes that we have seen, at least in the Western world, which would have been circulating even amongst Jesus and Paul's uh, Mediterranean peers, is the wisdom to know thyself. It is the great central principle of Socrates. This is an acknowledgement that we are many-layered beings and that the beginning of understanding anything starts with a proper inspection of the viewer. In our culture, we have seen this imperative to know thyself mangled into a command to define thyself. We are asked the impossible. Be who you are apart from any 
ulterior influence. As if we could just float somewhere. Still, this is just one of the ways that wisdom can turn to folly. And we see the need to know oneself behind every political narrative, movie script, and marketing ploy. The wisdom of the world says, there are depths to you that you have yet to realize. Let me help you do you. As you can see, once the viewer has done the simple task of self-examination, the next step is to perceive the world for what it truly is. To that end, I think it might be best to borrow from, not Socrates, but our old friend Plato and his cave analogy. He invites us to imagine that there are a circle of cavemen and cave women, cave persons, maybe. At any rate, these unenlightened beings are deep in a cave, and they are encircled around a fire. But they are not facing inward towards each other and towards the fire, but outwards. And there, all they see is a world vaguely lit and covered in shadowed projections of themselves. Right, the fire casting light from behind them. All they see is a world of shadow. There is a real world, yes, but our ability to perceive it has been hindered by our nature for whatever reason. While this might sound like the polar opposite of our scientific age, which believes so much in realism, it's actually the foundation of science. Every hypothesis within the scientific method is a suggestion that two things are connected which may otherwise have seemed obscure. Right? It is the attempt to discover patterns that are not obvious, that the world in itself is maybe knowable but it is difficult to understand. According to worldly wisdom, the external world is basically nothing more than a backdrop for humanity to work out our projections and do our best to not feel like scared little cave persons. So then when Paul talks about the wisdom of the world, though he may have had one particular Greek philosophy or another in mind, he's really talking about all those different ways that people have tried to control their circumstances. This includes Stoic and ascetic philosophies, which seek to control joy through temperance, and the hedonistic ones that seek to gain joy through indulgence. It includes democratic ideals, hoping to assure peace through equal voice and dictatorships, where the singularity of vision is meant to provide, uh, prevent dangerous divisions. At the end of the day, all of these forms of wisdom, all human agendas, they are an attempt for us to discern ourselves and lean into some place in this world 
so that we suffer as little as possible and gain as much as possible. The pursuit of happiness. How then might the wisdom of the cross be different? What does Jesus offer to the contrary of Socrates and Plato? You can look in your bulletins and your Bibles and see it. Jesus offers us a paradox. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This word Blessed here, actually a better translation, might be happy, uh, deriving all the way back from uh, Ashrei in Hebrew, the um, blessed is the one who does not walk in the path of the wicked. It's this happy because they are in a place of righteousness. Jesus is actually saying happy are those who are Mourning. Happy are those who are unhappy. It's a flat-out contradiction. It makes no sense. So then, what could make sense of this paradox? What could make this wisdom and not foolishness? The answer, I think, is simple. It is not that because of Jesus, we now have some incredible night vision goggles that allow us to look around the cave and see the world for what it really is more clearly than anyone else, right? We Christians are in the dark as much as anybody else. It is not that we have been removed from the cave, brought out into the daylight, where everything in the world and in ourselves makes perfect sense. No. We may still be poor in spirit, mourning, yearning for righteousness and peace and mercy. But here is the difference. Facing out at a world we can't understand oftentimes. In that cave though there may be shadows before us, we feel the warmth behind us. And we know that it's not just some fire, but it is the glory of the eternal God bursting forth into new day. And that the world that we see will not always be the world that is. Perhaps it's best for a moment to abandon the cave. I fear it may be more clear to just speak plainly. Christians, we are not reasonable. We don't have a faith that makes the best sense of this world as it is. For the longest time, that's what I believed that Christianity was. It is my best option. It makes the best sense of all the data. The promise of our faith 
is that there is a world that is not yet. And therefore, it cannot make sense within the world that is. Do you want blessings now? Hit and miss. Perhaps you'll get them, perhaps you won't. Our faith rests on the promise that the eternal God has not fully realized this world. We are awaiting something that will be fulfilled. And as such, we know that we can still be blessed when we feel cursed. We can be happy when we are mourning because this is not the world as it will always be. But the wisdom of the cross rests on the fact that the immortal God was a dead man. And yet, praise the king, in this kingdom, that does not stay true. In this kingdom, there is a reversal. Our friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge, I think, had an interesting perspective on this. He puts it in a pithy little poem, uh, first from the voice of a, uh, a skeptic and then the voice of someone faithful. How seldom, friend, a good great man inherits honor or wealth with all his worth and pains. It sounds like stories from the land of spirits if any man obtain that which he merits, or any merit that which he obtains. But hear the response of heavenly wisdom. For shame, dear friend, renounce this canting strain. What wouldst thou have a good, great man obtain? Place? Titles? Salary? A gilded chain? Or throne of courses which his sword had slain? Greatness and goodness are not means but ends. Hath he not always treasures, always friends? The good great man, three treasures, love and light and calm thoughts regular as infant's breath and three firm friends more sure than day and night, himself, his maker, and the angel death. In the wisdom of God, we are not so concerned with what we may receive here and now. We're not playing the long game for this life. We lean into who God is. We bless the one who blesses us so that we can move forward into a kingdom that makes sense and joy forever. I'll close with these lines from another priest and campus minister, Malcolm Guite. We bless you who have spelt your blessings out and set this lovely lantern on a hill, lightening darkness and dispelling doubt by lifting for a little while the veil. For longing is the veil of satisfaction and grief the veil of future happiness. We glimpse beneath the veil of persecution the coming kingdom's overflowing bliss. 
Oh, make us pure of heart and help us see amongst the shadows and amidst the morning the promised comforter alive and free in the kingdom coming and the sun returning that even in this pre-dawn dark we might at once reveal and revel in your light. Amen.